Hello and welcome back to KHM's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, April 23rd at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by, via video conference, Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Jen Habercorn of the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Julie. And Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Thank you all so much for joining us. I know we're still kind of getting used to this uh, virtual thing. So another week, and honestly, the only way I know it's Thursday is because we're taping the podcast. Let us start this week with the latest round of COVID-19 relief legislation from Congress. It passed the Senate on Tuesday, and the House is expected to pass it today. Uh, Like the days of the week, it's hard to keep track, but I think this is technically the fourth bill to provide funding to address the virus and its economic fallout. We know there's money to replenish the small business relief fund that ran out so fast. Jen, what else is in this bill? You're right. Uh, It's mostly money to restore the small business fund that had run out of cash because it was so popular and money was going out the door so quickly. But there's also $75 billion for hospitals and and physicians and $25 billion uh, that is designed to go toward improving the testing for COVID. Um, And it looks like it's going to pass overwhelmingly with bipartisan support. Although the House is going to vote in like small groups, right? So they because to keep the social distancing. Yeah, they're going to have nine tranches of members come in to vote. Um, You know, normally it's a raucous crowd in there. There's 435 members, bunch of staff members. um, And they're going to have kind of a rolling alphabetical list and members are supposed to vote Uh, at their allotted time. And there's actually going to be a second vote and they're going to clean the chamber in between. So it's going to be a very different process than what we're used to seeing on C-SPAN. And and yet they still haven't figured out how to vote remotely, right? I mean, it's not in the Constitution. Yes, they do have to change the rules, but this doesn't seem like it should be this hard. You're right. Um, There was supposed to be a vote to allow proxy voting today, but that vote was pulled because Republicans were very staunchly opposed. They feel like they need to be in the chamber. They need to be in Washington. You know, this is not just about voting, but it's also being involved in the negotiations. They're worried about further centralizing the power among congressional leadership. Uh, So that vote's not going to happen. Republicans would say that there are constitutional issues. They they say that the um, their interpretation is that they need to meet to vote. You know, I think everyone over the last few weeks understands that meeting over Zoom might be the same as (laughs) meeting in person. But uh, I think that's going to play out in the next couple of weeks. Speaker Pelosi put together a a group of lawmakers who's supposed to come up with a plan uh, to to do some kind of voting remotely by proxy. Uh, Republicans and Democrats are on that panel. I think it'll be a little difficult to come to agreement, but looks like they're going to try. I would cover a Zoom vote. (laughs) Well, yeah, that would me be too. kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they do conference calls now. I remember after 9-11, there was a lot of talk about continuity of government and what they could do. And that was, you know, 19 years ago. And now suddenly we could use this stuff and we don't have it. Yeah. Was, um, at the same time, you know, the Republicans who are opposed to this say if Congress was able to meet during the Civil War or the 1918 flu pandemic, people were able to travel to Washington um, you know, why can't they do it now on empty airplanes? 
so I, 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 I see that argument, but at the same time, we've all learned over the last several weeks how to use Zoom and remote voting uh, doesn't seem that far out of the possibility. We will, we will see how that goes. Um, meanwhile, um, talking about the not this bill that's about to pass, but the last bill that did pass, we got another snapshot of how the Department of Health and Human Services plans to distribute the $100 billion allocated to hospitals in that measure, in addition to the $30 billion already distributed based on hospitals, I think it was their 2018 Medicare billings, uh, which caused its own stir. Now officials say there will be special distributions for rural hospitals and clinics, for facilities like children's hospitals that don't do much, if any, Medicare business, and using that same funding to pay for uninsured people who are treated for COVID-19 and Medicare rates. So they'll be, they'll be, the hospitals will be reimbursed, but they'll be reimbursed at what they would have gotten if those were Medicare patients. Um, will this quiet any of the complaining that we've seen about the, the what were many perceived as an inequitable distribution of that first round of funds? Alice? Even- well, I think that both the decision to distribute the money a little bit more based on need rather than the metrics they were using before. In addition to the plussed up funding, in addition to some states already starting to move to allow elective and non-essential procedures again, should provide some relief to the hospital sector. But I imagine there are going to be fights for months, if not years to come. There were also some technical problems. Some of the hospital groups reported that they had to submit uh, payment data, I believe by tonight, but it might have been by last night, um, and that they couldn't, send, you know, it's sort of like a mini healthcare.gov, that they couldn't actually submit the information they needed in order to get paid that may have been resolved. And if it's not resolved, you know, I mean, if you ask a question, will people stop complaining? The answer is always going to be no. Um, will the complaining be a little less intense after these moves? Yes, I think it should be, but it won't go away because. There's going to be another pot of money they're going to fight over, and um, they're, you know, that's what Washington does is fight about money. I'm still surprised at the um, sort of the communication strategy from HHS when they gave out the first tranche of money. And they did say they gave it out because that was basically the only metric they had that could get it out the door fast. But there was all this complaining because a lot of money went to places that don't have a lot of COVID-19 patients. But of course, this money was intended not just for hospitals that are being slammed by COVID-19, but for hospitals that are that don't that basically don't have any patients right now that are in danger of closing their doors because they've canceled elective surgeries and everything else to be ready for when sort of their area does get swamped by COVID-19. And those, I mean, you could you could argue pretty convincingly that those are those hospitals are in as dire straits as the ones whose ICUs and emergency rooms are overflowing. And despite those choices being made in order to speed up payments, the payments haven't been as fast as as people would have wanted and there have been delays and there is a lot of frustration around that. So we'll see what happens now. All right. Well, I want to talk about how this pandemic is playing out in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. I feel like this is sort of a, it's not an untold Told story. Plenty of people are telling it, but I feel like it's an underappreciated story. We've obviously known from the start that this virus is incredibly dangerous for people who are older and in frail health, and nursing homes obviously are full of people who are one or the other or frequently both. Now we are seeing facilities in multiple states where dozens of patients have died, including some really horrific scenes, and yet these are supposed to be some of our most regulated health facilities. Joanne, you wrote about this a few weeks ago. How did we let this happen? 
Um, there are multiple reasons. I mean, there are, from the nursing home sector, you know, some of them are not well-staffed. Even the ones that are really high quality and conscientious about infection control are having trouble with this for reasons I'll, I'll get into in a second. But I mean, the quality of nursing homes ranges, the staffing adequacy ranges, their ability to do infection control ranges. Secondly, they're not designed for this. You know, they're not designed for infectious disease. They don't have zero pressure chambers or negative pressure chambers or whatever they're called. And and for 20 years, we've been trying to encourage more of a home-like less of a lonely existence so that people are supposed to be eating together and socializing and being together more. So the good things about nursing homes actually contributed to the spread of this disease. On the policy side, you know, like everything else, it goes back to guess what? Testing. You know, we didn't know that the virus was circulating in America. We thought, I mean, we were being told it's not a problem. There are only a few cases. They're travel related. In fact, it was here. We're now learning it was here even earlier than we thought. So people were coming in and out of nursing homes, family members, staff, some of whom were asymptomatic or didn't or, you know, had what they thought was just a cold and it was actually mild COVID. And they spread it and they spread it right and left. And once it's in this really vulnerable population, as Julie pointed out, it kills large numbers of people. It's something like one out of four deaths. Uh, that's not a precise figure, but it's in that ballpark. One out of four deaths in America. It's 10,000 out of 45,000, rough, rough figures, 47,000. Um, so it's, it's horrendous. And, and you can see governors like, um, you know, Governor Murphy in New Jersey has been jumping up and down and trying to address it. But it's very, even, even in the good ones, it's hard, but they're not all good ones. I read that just U.S. nursing home deaths are much greater than the total deaths in a lot of other countries, which was a staggering thing to, to think about. I think that the real numbers here might be, infection numbers might be a lot worse than we even know. And CMS's new rule requiring d- more disclosures could reveal those numbers soon. The administration has said that as they push forward with testing, as they expand testing, that nursing homes are going to be a priority. And they've said that several times in the last few days. So we should see more testing. Uh, The other thing is we're talking a lot about the patients who are clearly extremely vulnerable. By definition, you're sick or impaired if you're in a nursing home. But the staff is also, they are getting sick in large numbers and there have been deaths. So what I was going to include in my extra credit later, I'm just going to mention now was a Center for Public Integrity piece by Susan Ferris, and it's called When Nursing Home Workers Feel Like Lambs Led to Slaughter. Um, they do not have enough personal protective gear. They are coming into contact because of the way nursing home workflows were designed and they are being changed now, but they are coming into contact with multiple people so they could be exposed over and over. Um, they didn't have access to testing. you know, So they are both spreading it because they're going from patient to patient and they're getting it because they're going from patient to patient. And um, many of these are low-income people. You know, This is not like a really lucrative career being an aide in a nursing home. Um, and I don't think we're talking enough about the protections they need as well. Yeah. Jen, did you want to jump in? I was just going to say, you know, when I when we first realized that the nursing homes were such a vulnerability, it almost felt like the the cruise ships, you know, in the beginning of this crisis, uh, that that Princess Cruise Line in Japan. At first, the idea was, oh, they're safer there; they're they're a little quarantine. And then only later we realized that that was the worst possible scenario that it was spreading rapidly on that ship because it's not set up to be. Uh, People are not set up to be quarantined there. And to Joanne's point, nursing homes aren't set up to do that kind of infection control either. And they're not, they're not designed for infectious disease. They're, they're designed for things like dementia and physical disability. It's a whole different 
kind of medical situation, and it's not what they're made for. There have been some efforts to isolate, to have some COVID nursing homes and some non-COVID nursing homes. But again, unless you can test everybody who comes in and out of the non-COVID nursing home, it's going to become a COVID nursing home really fast. Everything, so much goes back to testing and the failure of testing in this country. And a lot of families have been frustrated that even in nursing homes where people have been tested and cases have been identified, they haven't been alerted and they haven't been given the option of pulling their family member out of there. And so there's been there's been a lot of outcry about that. And I think that has also contributed to the new federal requirements for disclosures. As we talk about testing, um, I, I want to sort of go morph into that. Um, it's important to remember that there's more than one kind of test we're talking about here. Mostly we've been focused so far on the diagnostic tests that determine if you have an active infection. But in the next phase, it will be important to also have serologic testing. That's a blood test that can determine whether you've had the virus and have antibodies and potentially immunity. Uh, there are now lots of antibody tests out there um, and even a couple of community surveys that have been done, and the results are literally all over the place. It turns out that the FDA basically told test makers to go ahead and get the tests out first and verify that they work later, and apparently a lot of them don't work. Um, I get that speed is important here, but isn't this likely to do more harm than good? Don't we need serologic testing that gives us accurate results? Absolutely. This feels like such a vulnerability. Um, You know, just anecdotally, people I know, everyone's eager to find out if they've had the disease and if they uh, have the antibodies. But to have tests on the market that we aren't sure whether they're accurate just seems like a much bigger problem than having no test on the market at all. And uh, the reports that we're seeing that there's many tests out there with inaccurate capability, just, you know, every public health expert that uh, has put out a report about reopening the economy says that this is one of the first necessary steps. And to have that kind of vulnerability there seems like such a big mistake that, you know, the idea of reopening the economy with false tests just seems uh, a huge, huge error. It seems to be sort of an overcorrection issue from the FDA. They were too slow to allow some of these. The CDC test was the first one we all heard about. It didn't work. We all know that. All these other tests, that was diagnostic diagnostic test. And this FDA was slow to authorize these other tests to be used on an emergency authorization basis or whatever way of waiving the usual procedures and getting them out there. They, it took weeks. So on the antibody test, they did the, uh, they, that's where they may have overcorrected, where they said, yeah, get them out there. And the FDA commissioner, Steve Hahn, has actually said on national television, a lot of them don't work. So he is now, the FDA is beginning to sort of try to pull back a little bit, verify them, figure out which ones work, figure out which ones go ahead. But there, there are a whole lot of questions. We're, we're, gonna get, we're about to get into testing problems stage two, because there are a lot of questions about the quality of the antibody test, and there are a lot of unknowns about immunity. Now, scientists do believe that we have some immunity, that if you've had the disease, you have some protection. How much protection, how long it lasts, we don't know yet. It's, we've, we've only had this disease around you know, barely since December, we haven't had a lot of knowledge. The scientists are still learning about it. And, you know, we sh- how do we know what happens after a year? We haven't had experience with what happens after a year. Nobody so, has lived a year having right, recovered right. from it, it. It didn't, you know, the assumptions about antibody, about how much immunity someone with antibodies have, they're not made up. They're based on preliminary data and what we know about other coronaviruses. But they're sure not etched in stone certain no one will ever change their mind or evidence won't give us pause. 
And at a time when states are already lifting restrictions and people will have the option, if not be required to go back to work, just having that question mark and not really having the confidence of knowing if someone indeed is immune or not, or if a test is accurate or not, could be really dangerous and could lead people to feel overconfident and be out in groups a lot more than they would already. Yeah, I mean, none of us are immunologists or virologists. It's also possible you have some protection that you could get sick again, but you wouldn't get as sick. But then could you still infect someone else? I mean, there's just... I mean, the working assumption is there's immunity. How much immunity and the durability of the immunity are the questions. So we know, we know that the credibility of these tests is obviously not great. I, I worry about the credibility of some of our sort of public health leaders, too. It seems like I think, you know, Wednesday was like the third or fourth White House briefing where somebody from the public health, one of the public health spokespeople had to get up and walk back something fairly benign that they had said that made the president angry. And now we have, you know, the the recently transferred head of BARDA, who was in charge of looking at vaccines, transferred to NIH. I mean, is there a concern that that we're not going to be able to really believe what's coming out of the mouths of our top public health officials? I think we've seen them all do a verbal minuet on that White House stage, that they're trying to convey public health information while trying not to get themselves kicked off the task force. Um, You know, that they have to sort of work with the reality that President Trump is President Trump. And they have to sort of work with that dynamic. You see them get up and praise his leadership, et cetera, day after day, and then they start trying to talk about the science. And we've seen, you know, Anthony Fauci, we've seen Robert Redford, Redfield, we've seen, we all do that. Um, we, you know, we, we've seen, we've seen Deborah Burke, you know, very carefully couch things she says. Um, you know, we've, we've seen, you know, we've seen Vice President Pence, you know, sort of praise President Trump and then go endorse what the scientists are saying. We've, we see this every single day. So, you know, the public sort of has to then filter or interpret or you know, understand that dynamic so they know what is being said by the public health people sort of wrapped up in this dynamic they have with the president. And they're trying to toe the party line, but the party line also keeps changing is the problem. I mean, for weeks and weeks, the president was hyping these malaria drugs as the cure-all, and then that abruptly stopped as tests started to come in showing that there were some serious risks and not a ton of benefits. And so the the line from all of the health officials had to shift as well. And that's happened on a lot of different fronts. And so not only do you have them walking this sometimes impossible line between communicating accurate information and not contradicting the president, that's not possible when the president is giving inaccurate information, but also what the president's stance is continues to change and shift. And so you have officials like the governor of Georgia. He was clearly sort of towing the previous party line that was, it's free to open the country. Let's go. Let's all go back to work. And then the party line changed and Trump publicly scolded him. And so you're just having these top officials and top folks in the Republican Party keep falling down on this on this shifting ground. And another problem with communicating in science is science changes 
and science is incremental. So it's not, if scientists believe certain things about this disease in January and they believe other things today and the public hears that, it's not that they were lying or covering up or that they were stupid. It just, it's, it's, you know, it's an accretion of knowledge. So that confuses the public. I mean, the example, when I talk about this, I always give is, you know, dietary advice. You know, first, eat eggs. Don't eat eggs. Eat a lot of eggs. Eat a few eggs. Eat eggs every day. Never touch an egg. I mean, we've, we've had this, you know, and butter. You know, we've had these, these ping-pong-y advice about nutrition, that, and it contributes to confusion or distrust in science. There are other political reasons for distrust and expertise, but that hurts the scientific community's ability to communicate and the public's ability to hear. There's that mismatch between how scientists understand how science works and that public thirst for something black and white. I am in a pandemic. I am scared. Tell me what I need to know. Tell me accurately instead of, wait a minute, you said that. I mean, masks is the perfect example. And then it creates distrust. It creates, you're hiding something from me. You're lying to me. You're covering something up. And they, are, they aren't, you know. It says, I mean, not that no scientist has ever lied ever, but the, the basic problem is these scientists are scrambling to learn about something that never existed on the planet Earth. They've never seen before. They're actually understanding it fast. But this virus is like always a step ahead of us. Even the symptoms in the hospitals, the doctors, it was a really good piece. I think it was the Washington Post yesterday about, or today, whenever they, everything merges, you know, that they thought it was a respiratory disease. Well, it turns out it's a respiratory disease and a kidney disease and a blood clot disease and a neurological disease and a coronary disease. You know, the more they learn, the more complicated and difficult it is in many, many, many ways. As a country, our population, we're not really good at we're not very scientifically literate, and we're not good at assessing risk, and we're not under- good at understanding how science progresses. Well, and I, I saw a study this morning, now I can't remember where, but it said that 57% of the people who tested positive didn't have a fever. Um, so, you know, everybody, all these, you know, in China, you see all these sort of take your temperature before you walk into a store. Well, half the people have them, have it, don't have a fever. That's not going to be a very useful, you know, tool to I separate out. Had to, I actually sent one of the reporters who works for me. I got online when I found out she didn't have a thermometer and I <laughs> found one and I sent it to her. So now maybe I didn't need to. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be easier to get a thermometer. My 20 something niece who lives in New York and has to go to work because she's a social worker also hasn't been able to get a thermometer. So maybe, maybe found one. there are They're other things. Online. They're I'm beginning glad. to get back online. I am good. That is good to know. But still no baking yeast. <laughs> no, I can't find flour. Um, anyway, I do want to talk about the impact COVID-19 is having on the rest of the healthcare system, both patients and providers. Um, there is a lot of focus on the providers who are on the front lines. We've already talked about this a little bit, the lack of personal protective equipment and the physical risk to them and the overwhelmed hospitals. But there are, as we said, hospitals and doctor's office and dentists and physical therapists and infusion facilities doing literally nothing right now. And there's a real concern that some of them might not be there when things are allowed to open up. How much should we be worried about sort of the ongoing capacity of our healthcare system to take care of the rest of things that people get sick with? I think those pressures are why states are already moving to loosen some of those restrictions, although they're saying, you know, we need to be able to clamp down again if needed and and preserve capacity if there's another surge in coronavirus patients. But, I mean, you have states across the political spectrum um, and sort of spanning the range of how, how careful they've been on other things, taking these steps, California, Texas, all over. So I think that... That is an acknowledgement that this is really hitting providers hard and 
some might not be able to survive. Doctors' offices and healthcare providers are businesses. I mean, they are, you know, some of them are heavily subsidized by Medicare, Medicaid, and some of them are not, but they have a balance that they have to have between those elective surgeries and things that they need to treat in the ER and COVID patients. And um, if they're not able to bring in that revenue from testing and procedures that make them a little bit of money, um, they're not going to be able to remain afloat either. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talk about hospitals canceling elective surgeries and you think of it as, you know, like really elective things, you know, like breast reconstruction or, you know, stuff that are, you know, nose jobs. But I mean, a lot of things that are considered elective surgeries, a lot of some of these are cancer surgeries and transplants and, you know, things that in in a normal time you would not think of as being elective. But these are the thing, you know, and, and heart procedures. These are things that hospitals make most of their money on in a lot of places. And, and there are a lot of, I think, primary care doctors, too, because people are afraid to go to the doctor um, because they might, even if they're sick, it would be worse if they caught COVID. And especially if they're sick, it would be worse if they caught COVID. Some of so, that has switched to telemedicine. The, the procedures you can't do by telemedicine, a heart operation you can't do by telemedicine. But, you know, if you think your kid has strep throat, even if you can't get a test, you can get a, I mean, I'm sure that antibiotic rates or prescribing rates are probably pretty high now because if you if you can't do a throat culture you might just prescribe the antibiotics that's not good practice over the long haul is it going to totally destroy antibiotic resistance for you know three months of overuse probably not I mean I've even had physical therapy uh you know at telemedicine they can't do everything obviously she can't touch me but she can you know help me make my exercises harder when I'm ready although we apparently overdid it the other day for pediatrics general um primary care Assessing whether somebody needs to get a COVID test or whether you just have a run-of-the-mill cold, although you can't really tell for sure, but you can have some, you can tell if somebody's really sick. Uh, so some of the primary care settings have, have continued, but it's things, the procedures, it's just, which is where the money is. The money isn't in strep throat. I even read a report today, I'm forgetting, unfortunately, where I read it. There's concern that um, uh, there's people are delaying appointments for just regular vaccinations because, you know, why go into a doctor's office to get your baby's MMR shot when uh, uh, you can put it off what you hope is a couple weeks or what the doctor hopes is a couple weeks. And there's concern that there's going to be some vaccinations um, that people are delaying because, because of that kind of a risk. Which actually, that, that sort of feeds right into my next question, which is to flip this around and look at the patient point of view. And as we just said, there are patients who need, you know, serious, and not just vaccines, which are important for prevention, but people who need ongoing treatment who aren't getting it. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around the pent-up demand that we're going to have at some point with a provider, um, you know, uh, facilities that that aren't that are not going to be that at this moment are probably not equipped to meet it, but sort of who are not going to be equipped if a lot of them go out of business. I just worry about the mismatch between demand and supply whenever this sort of lets up. Yeah, well, I mean, healthcare workers are being laid off. I mean. Um they're, some of them are being furloughed. The ones who are in these settings and whose skills don't transfer well into inpatient acute care. So there still is an expectation that this sector will mostly bounce back, unlike, you know, compared to like the restaurant industry, not that it would 100% bounce back, but, you know, will we have ambulatory surgery centers and will we have, you know, outpatient care and, you know, dermatology? You know, for the by and large, we will. And also, as we reopen the country, you know, in Georgia, Governor Kemp wanted to open bowling alleys and movie theaters. That's probably not the best public policy, public health policy, but starting to 
um, reopen needed surgeries and needed ways of getting medical care makes both economic sense, public health sense, and, you, and you're also dealing with people who know how to fight disease. So walking into your pediatrician's office or, I mean, we've just outgrown pediatrics, but I had to check something the other day. And uh, on the website, I know that they noticed they've just set up a drive-by vaccine. Your kid sticks their arm out of the car and they do it and <laughs> cough. So they're trying to keep... They're trying to keep, no, that's an area where people have cars. It won't always work. But there are creative solutions um, to some of these things. So I'm less worried. I mean, I agree with Julie. I think there'll be challenges, but I don't think the entire American healthcare system is about to go belly up compared to some other sectors, um, entertainment, travel, that a lot of lower income people who have a lot more vulnerability. Um, that that's where I think the bulk of our economic challenges are going to be service industries, and and sort of one more with uh, patients who are seeking care that they are unable to get is of course abortion. Um, Alice, I'm glad you're here because it seems these off again, on again abortion restrictions literally change every five minutes. Um, tell us what's happening in Texas, where all abortions were blocked, then allowed, then blocked, then medication abortions were allowed, and then they were blocked um, as of as of ten thirty on Thursday morning. What's the status in Texas? Well, it's it's a bit anticlimactic after all of that fight. But as we were just discussing, states are moving to lift the restrictions on non-essential procedures. So after all of these legal fights, after they went to the district court, they went to the Fifth Circuit, they went to the Supreme Court and then said, never mind. Now it's just over. Uh, the restrictions have been lifted. Texas is allowing elective procedures, including abortion. To resume, that doesn't mean that the fight won't be ongoing in other states. You know, just this week we had a reversal of the lower court's decision in Arkansas so that some abortions are now banned there. We have other states where this is playing out. We have circuit splits where the Eighth Circuit supported Arkansas's ban, but the Sixth Circuit and the Tenth Circuit, I believe, said that they didn't support the abortion bans during the pandemic. And so this very well could go back to the Supreme Court. Um, it could also end just like it abruptly ended in Texas because states are moving to lift these restrictions and allow the medical industry to resume business as usual again. So it's just constantly shifting. And for patients right now who are seeking these procedures, it's been extremely stressful. Some have had their appointments scheduled, canceled, rescheduled, recanceled. They have had to think about whether they need to drive hours and hours and hours to another state to obtain this. You know, we have stories of people driving from Texas to Colorado um, in the legal filings and that kind of travel is dangerous during a pandemic, obviously. So um, this is having a real impact. I don't want to minimize that, but it also could all go away in an instant as well. We will, we will all continue to drink news out of the fire hose. Um, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Joanne, you uh, you kind of went already. Is there anything else you want to add to to your nursing home yeah, story? That was the you know just remember the workers as well as the patients. Yes, uh, Alice. 
yes, I wanted to shout out a piece by my colleague Laura Baron Lopez, and it is about the widespread issues with distrust and poor communication on this medical and scientific information about coronavirus and how it's not reaching the communities who are most at risk, people of color, black and Latino communities specifically, and the poor communication from both states and the federal government to these communities is coming on top of just decades, if not centuries, of medical neglect and mistrust for those communities. And she does a really good job sort of laying out those challenges. And as we were talking about uh, vaccines, um, there's a lot of concern. Vaccine um, use is already low in those communities and there already is distrust and conspiracy theories. And so there are concerns about when a vaccine is eventually developed for coronavirus, how there will be enough outreach and trust building in those communities to make sure they're protected. Jen? I'll second Alice's comment on Laura's story. It was very good. Um, my extra credit is uh, How Trump Let the U.S. Fall Behind the Curve on Coronavirus Threat by my colleagues David Cloud, Paul Pringle, and Eli Stokels. Uh, this was a really good look at uh, how the Trump administration did not listen to the experts that they have uh, deep within the bowels of the federal government, particularly at HHS, um, and kind of 30,000 foot view of the last uh, three, four months at this point. Um, I thought it was a really good, uh, good look at who the administration listens to and who it does not listen to. Yeah, there are a lot of good stories about the administration out there right now. Um, my piece is from The Atlantic by James Hamblin, who's both an Atlantic staff writer and a physician. And it's called Why Some People Get Sicker Than Others. And there have been a lot of stories along these lines this week about doctors learning about who's more likely to get very sick or die of COVID-19. It's actually turning out that if you have asthma, which you would think would be a huge red flag, um, that's not so much a problem as high blood pressure or other you know, cardiac ailments. Um, and that part is very well explained in this story, but I'm recommending it because at the very end, Jim goes very deep, and I won't spoil it, but you should definitely read it, and you should read it to the end. Um, so that is our show for this week. Special thanks this week and all weeks to our ace engineer, Francis Ying, who makes the magic happen under the best of circumstances and even more so now. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Holstein at Joanne Cannon and at Jen Hab. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.